Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 116. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're going to talk about all things ESG, environmental, social and corporate governance. ESG is far from a new concept, but has taken off in popularity over the past few years, and rightly so. ESG has the potential to reduce costs, boost stock performance and increase customer and employee loyalty, amongst other things. Join us while we take a look at what the current landscape looks like, the challenges and the opportunities in this space, and of course, the future. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance, Google. How are you today, Nigel? I am tip-top, refreshed with a tan, not that you can see this, folks. But I'm just back from holiday and I've had my first holiday in two years, so I'm chipper. Okay, next up, we're also joined by Sean Milley, founder of Bright Blue Hair and co-founder of Delegated Authority Specialist Green Kite Associates. Welcome back. How are you doing today, Sean? And could you give us our listeners a little recap about yourself, please? Hi there, John. Yeah, and thanks for having me back for my third time. I obviously didn't block my copybook enough on the previous two episodes. So I'll try harder this time, Nigel, shall I and John? You did quite well. You did yeah. quite well, to be fair. Yeah, okay. Copybook blotted. So yeah, uh, I'm um, an outside-in insurance expert and nerd, and I'm focused on tech and data-enabled value generation in insurance and financial services, John, which sounds a mouthful, but it's very interesting to me. And uh, what does that actually mean in, in a bit of practice? Well, practical advisory and support for fintech entrepreneurs and corporate entrepreneurs. And I obsess about the types of emerging and actual operational resilience issues like ESG that we're discussing today. But add to that um, quite a bit of AI, bit of open insurance, bit of corporate digital um, responsibility as well. So lots to obsess about. Wow, we'll be having you back on lots of shows with that extensive list of expertise. Okay, next, uh, we also have Alice Bowerman, Head of Marketing and Growth at Armakarma. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Alice? And could you also give it a little bit of information about yourself, please? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, John. And thanks for having me for the first time. I'm really glad to be here talking about ESG. It's very close to my heart and not to be appearing on the Metaverse episode because that's fascinating, but I'd be pretty clueless on that. So uh, I've worked in the insurance industry for the past eight years and I joined Armakama at the back end of 2020. And I was really drawn to the company's ethical stance, which is to transform insurance for good, just through charitable giving and maintaining good eco-credentials, but also just providing a better option for contents insurance for renters, which just doesn't work as is with a low cost, flexible insurance subscription. We launched just last year, having established in 2019. So we had a bit of a setback for obvious reasons, which I'm sure we'll come on to in the episode. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you everyone. Right, let's get started. Okay, let's start this conversation by talking about the progress ESG has made. Sean, could you please define ESG for our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yes, I will certainly try. So for me, and, and I'm someone who's who's really dived into ESG as an operational resilience issue originally for since about 2018. I've been studying it as a as a whole area, but also as it relates to insurance as well, John. So for me at this point, I think ESG is best understood as a data-driven probe into how you operationalize your business purpose. In other words, does your talk match your walk? And I just want to go into a little bit of detail to unpack that a little bit, because I'm also aware that it's become a topic and a phrase that people probably, lots of people feel a bit bombarded by, and possibly even a bit over it as we stand now. But don't be over it. It's really important. And um, it's not going anywhere. So just to unpack a little bit, ESG as that kind of data-driven probe was originally driven by the investor community, and that started about 20 years ago. And investors at that point were looking primarily at the sustainability of returns. In other words, will those returns last? Can they last based on what the firm is doing in its business? And at that point, the, the focus was very much around climate, but that has expanded into other areas around social and governance. And so with that background of it coming from the investor world and 20 years of investors really looking at this very hard, there'll be lots of chief investment officers on insurance boards who are very familiar with having to, to, to report to and, and meet ESG-related um, standards, for example. 
there's a lot of data, there's a lot of metrics, and it's and it's a it's become an industry, John, right? So where there were um, ratings and methodologies and ways of measuring and looking at this, now there are 3,000 plus different choices that a firm has. Which ones do they choose to tell which story across the E, the S, and the G? So it's a growth market, which means it's full of hype as well as full of substance, which means actually there's some very difficult choices as ever for business leaders to be making about how they approach ESG. And I know we'll, we'll come on to that specifically around insurance in a moment. So I think just two more points on that. It isn't CSR with bells and whistles on it. So CSR, corporate social responsibility. Most large firms will have been producing CSR reports for many years. Those are voluntary and they, the firm basically defines what it means by corporate social governance and, and decides who measures it and decides what good looks like. Well, in the world of ESG, what good looks like is being set by other people who are not you. And now it's not just investors, it's regulator, it's your talent. So the people you have and the people that you want to have, increasingly it's consumers and other stakeholders, civic society as a whole, that is now setting what good looks like and what those appropriate measures are as well. So those, it really isn't CSR with bells and whistles on. It's much more important than that. Hopefully that's a, that's a good sort of grounding for people coming new to ESG, but also people who have their own views, but are potentially interested in the way that I see it as well. Yeah, no, very much. Thank you ever so much for summing that up. Oh, just a quick follow-on question. If there's a sort of plethora of data and, and choices, do you think it gives companies uh, the ability to kind of choose what makes most sense for them or what is most favorable do, do you think there's so much too much choice in terms of the data and how they report this I might be going off piece slightly early here, but I thought because you mentioned it, I thought it was a good follow on question. Yeah, I would like to talk about this a little bit more in terms of when we get on to sort of blockers and, and so forth yeah. a bit later on. But but what I do think is that it's all very well having choice, but you have to have standards and standardization as well. And that's where the gap is at the moment. Now, I, I happen to think those gaps are closing very quickly. And again, we can talk about this a bit later um, in the conversation, John. But I think your, your question kind of says, is it harder or easier to have all this choice? And I think it's a lot harder if you don't have the standards and standardization to go with it. And the rewards, so the rewards to the firms who play the game and the the stick, if you like, for those firms who don't, right? So I think that, and I also think, I, well, I just know that, that, that people who would otherwise be needing and starting to get really conversant with, with what ESG means to them as business people working in financial firms. And again, I feel very strongly about that as well. And we'll, and, and we'll hopefully talk a little bit more about that later on. You know, anywhere where there's hype, people get turned off, John, right? And it, it is a growth industry. I mean, there are startups and scale-ups popping up everywhere. There are established credit ratings agencies who are producing new, new bits of their business, right? It's the way business works. There's a new risk. There's a new opportunity. Hey, we can make money out of this. So I do think there's an unhelpful bandwagon, but that's the world that we live in. Don't let it get in the way. And inevitably, what will happen is as that standardization process that I've alluded to continues... I think inevitably it will become clearer what data and which metrics you're going to need to be able to evidence various aspects of your ESG. And you can then start to make informed choices rather than just be bamboozled by, you know, 3000 plus sources is, you know, how the hell do you even start there? And moving on to yourself, Alice, as, as a startup with, with Armakama, have you noticed, has there been a massive explosion in ESG? And can you pinpoint when this started? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's always businesses and investors who care about the principles of ESG and those who don't, that's just um, the way things are. Uh, the key difference now, I think, is that the financial bottom line is going to be impacted if you don't ignore it. You know, um, Sean alluded to those who are going to get left behind because customers, among other stakeholders, are demanding better. And if you don't do better... Um, they're going to go somewhere else, you know, they're going to invest elsewhere or they're going to purchase elsewhere. And it's not something you can fake. If you position yourself in such a way that's not authentic, you're going to get found out. We saw that on Twitter on International Women's Day. 
there was an account um, that called out all the gender pay gaps on businesses that were raising awareness on their channels, International Women's Day. And then this little bot that came out and said, actually, the median average between men and women in this company is is imbalanced. So you will get found out. Why has there been an explosion? Why has it gone into the mainstream? I think a combination of things, uh, impending climate emergency, social division, economic turmoil, you know, take your pick. It's kind of a perfect storm that's forcing us to reassess as a as a business uh, community. And, you know, Sean might be able to pinpoint a different time when it started. For me, it became quite obvious uh, during COVID-19. And I'm, I'm happy to go into that a little bit. But I think COVID just shone a light on what matters and took out the distractions of the usual day to day. But it also showed us how much could change in a short time on a global scale. In my previous role, I interviewed Theo Duchin, who's a co-CEO of Actress, and they got employees from five countries onto video calls with very minimal disruption to their service. And it actually accelerated plans that were already in the pipeline. So it also just showed how much we can affect change as individuals and in businesses when we have a common objective. The common objective for COVID was keep everyone safe, stay at home. We went on Zoom. We still work from home. We still use Zoom. 400 businesses took Hiscox to court over business interruption losses and won. So, yeah, uh, COVID's been a bit of a catalyst for innovation because it's shown us what's possible when we unite for a common cause. And that is so applicable to ESG on so many levels. Yeah, it's incredible when you look. I mean, I remember organisations when they used to talk about flexible working and it could never apply to call centres. It was impossible. It just wouldn't happen. And for years and years and years, this was touted. And then, you know, COVID struck and within well, I was going to say within three months, within three weeks, some of them have moved their entire operations. And it's changed the way we will potentially work forever. Uh, so yes, you're right, it can be done. It's three days, John, isn't it? It's not even three weeks, it's three days. I mean, Lloyd's of London shut down overnight practically, and there was no underwriting rooms. And you asked, I think we said before on the show, if you asked if that was possible years ago, we have all said, no, it's a two-year project to make it work. And as the old saying goes, it's impossible till it's done. And it got done really quickly. Yeah, and, and, and I think for the better as well. So, Nigel, I'll come to you on this. Why is it important to talk about this topic or, or why do you think it's having a spotlight shone on it more and more and more? Obviously, it was raised in a lot of detail at COP26. Um, it came under more focus. That I'm not, I'm not sure that raised it uh, externally so much, but certainly it's getting a spotlight everywhere, You know, as we discuss from customers to social media to businesses. Why do you think it's important? What do you think... Why is it having this spotlight shot on it recently? You've reminded me of the poll that Paolo Como did on what is COP26. And the number of people that didn't actually know was was amazing, I think, and surprised many folks. Um, why, why now? Why is it here? I think it feels like society has definitely moved to a, are we doing the right things? Whether it's women in insurance that we've talked about on the show many, many times, whether it's ESG or otherwise. And I think you opened up with the comments about greenwashing or it's everywhere and do people really know what it is? I asked my 12-year-old what things are important and this is one of the things that he comes up with. And you think to yourself, actually, I have hope in the next generation or the next generations that think doing the right thing for society and the planet and so much more are the right things to do. And I think we're waking up quite quickly, not even slowly, but quite quickly uh, across the industry to be doing those right things. And I think in insurance specifically, we have one of the most profound opportunities, given that nothing moves, shakes or otherwise without an insurance product in place. So you, you look at what, I'll give you two examples, you look at what Lloyds of London have done around the insurance of fossil fuels and dirty fuels and whatever else, and ceasing that. Now, they could have put restrictions on and slowed it down, and that's what's happened in many countries, or they could have just stopped, which I think, you know, to broadly, many of the organisations have just stopped and created the impetus for change in that instance. So I think that's really, really interesting. And the other example I always go to in this space is from legal and general investment management back in, I think it was June 2021, that puts AIG on the naughty step and MetLife on the naughty step given that they hadn't followed through on their agendas accordingly around ESG. So 
that is now starting to have, in my mind, material impact when you have both investment firms and insurance firms starting to call the shots in the same way that you would have VCs saying, we're not going to invest in boards that are, are non-diverse. So we have the ability to act and we have the ability to act with our feet or with our investments. And that's here and now. I just wish, I just wish more people would do it. First of all, Nigel, Lloyd didn't stop altogether. Sadly, they've set quotas, which is better than nothing, but they haven't stopped. And those are voluntary quotas now as well, not mandatory. But there is definite movement around looking at not underwriting and supporting the infrastructure for new fossil fuel projects, although that that is still ongoing. And this relates to one of the forces, John, that I think has brought it front and centre is because civic society activists are getting really smart about tracking, about telling the story, about using data and influencing skills. And I'm thinking particularly of Ensure Our Future to have those conversations in a way that, that is, is possible for complex organisations who have clients who happen to be in fossil fuels, what, what are those clients, what are those insurers supposed to do? Walk away. That's why we talk about the transition economy, right? So moving from a carbon intensive economy to a, to a carbon neutral economy. So I think those civic society activists and the way they're telling the story and they're using data and they're, they're using influencing skills way better, their story is really clear. I think for us as insurance, it's not so clear because it's very complicated. It's not simple in, in some ways. In other ways, it absolutely is around diversity and inclusion, for example. And I think the second factor that I would bring up there is obviously regulation, right? When you're being asked to do, well, as the TCFD is now mandatory for the top 1,300 companies, lots of them will be, and financial institutions, lots of them will, will include the insurers, um, that's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which started as a voluntary tracking code and has now been made mandatory. You know, that force of regulation is important too. And then just lastly, actually, you have got major insurers like Aviva. Basically, they're setting their net zero targets, looking at the E side of the E, the S and the G. And they are starting now to work actively with their supply chain because as globally significant financial institutions operating it globally, they know that in order to future-proof their business, they have to be acting now, and they are, right? So I think those are, those are some of the other drivers for why this is important for everybody now, not just somebody calling themselves an ESG specialist or it's everybody working in insurance. Because as Nigel quite rightly says, we have Without us, nothing moves. I mean, I think that's a great phrase, Nigel. And and the point is that civic society activists really understand that, John, right? But equally, the the employees of now and the future, I felt for quite a while now that actually the employee values and the organisational values have to align. And if you were a... I wouldn't personally join an organisation that was churning out dirty fuel or whatever else or, or otherwise. And the fact that... that Google's super green and there's a whole host of good things around data centers and, and, uh, and ESG more broadly, for me is a real win. It feels like there are, those values are aligned to me personally. The same would be true, I think, for my kids joining organizations going forward. And, that, you know, you've mentioned Aviva, which I think have done a really, really good job. AXA Excel have made a whole, ho a whole host of announcements. AXA have made a, a whole host of announcements saying they won't invest in oil or otherwise unless they've got clear transition plans. I think people are doing are actively doing their bit right now to start that change. And it's going to be a long, slow process because these things don't happen overnight, but people have started that move. Yeah. And just, just to jump into that, Nigel, you know, if your kids are going um, for a kind of FTSE 100 company, they're after COP26, 60 of those FTSE 100 companies have committed to achieving next zero by 2050. So um, yeah, as you said, the process is, is not a fast one, but it's interesting that you raise the point that it's the employees entering those job markets who really care and are going to help shift the change as well. 100%. And I think, you know, they've got the, you know, the net zero insurance alliance where they've had 20 insurers sign up. You know, they're responsible for 11% of the world's premium. 
And to your point, it's, it's by 2050, but it's starting to grow impetus. Let's move on to some of the challenges. Well, I mean, um, we've, we've already covered the, the one of the biggest challenges, and that's the kind of the withdrawing from fossil fuels and the ceasing investment in fossil fuels, which is beginning to change, um, as Nigel and Sean have already covered. The thing is, uh, from a cynical perspective, part of the reason that these companies will have to move away from investment in fossil fuels is because it becomes completely financially unviable. You know, I think fossil fuels historically was a safe bet because everybody used them. And now it's actually going to cost a lot more in a monetary value if you're not even looking at the um, at the earth value and the health of the planet. Yeah, because I mean, there's two angles from an insurer. And Sean, you picked up on this. There's there's the angle of, well, there's actually three angles, I think. There's, there's one, what are we doing ourselves in terms of our own organisation? There's what are our clients doing in terms of the underwriting risk? Do we underwrite you know, the, the, the coal mines, the fossil fuels, et cetera? And then the final one, you know, as an investor in terms of bonds and a big investor into the stock market, are we investing into these companies? And, and actually, as an insurer, you, you've almost got to look at all three of them and say, what are we doing in each of these spaces? Yeah, yeah, it's not almost, John. It's it's definitely what you need to do, right? But but I genuinely feel like the third piece, the investment piece, has been underway for such a long time. I'm not saying it's done and dusted, but I don't think it's as hard as number one, which is working out what we do as a firm in the absence of standards, right? Globally applicable standards, although that is changing. So, and, and then the second one, well, what do our clients need to some degree or another, all clients are transition clients, right? All clients have have needs, outputs, inputs that somehow either put them in conflict with a net zero plan or have supply chain issues and, and modern slavery issues in the S portion. And anyone that's using technology is going to have massive governance issues around algos. Don't get me started on that, John, right? Sean, if you break that down a bit further, though, and I often follow the electric vehicle route of working out how we go from fossil fuels and ICE to EV, and you look at the government and the regulatory and the, the standards that go with all these sorts of things, you start to work out the impact to the number of people employed in these sectors, the availability of talent and so much more. So as you start to build out the the mind map of things that are affected, it's not as simple as just going, let's just stop because the the ripple effects through industries, villages, societies, employment, access to talent, so much more is quite rampant, yep. isn't it? There's loads to go fix or loads to go address. It's not simple, Nigel. It's not simple at all. But I think two things. I think any plan that says net zero by 2050 is flying in the face of climate science that says we have to achieve the limit of 1.5 degrees global warming above pre-industrial levels by 2030. So any plan that's got 2050 in it is not going to achieve that milestone. So it's for the birds. Yeah, it's interesting. It's window dressing. Because I've seen, I've seen some, some insurance, like Aon, for example, they, they've committed by the end of the decade, 2030, but Zurich have committed to 2050. So there does seem to be this, this difference, Sean, between some of them are going for the end of the decade and some of them are, are really focusing on that 2050 target. Yeah, you need to follow the science. And, and I, I'm not dismissing the organisational complexities, but I am saying if you're going to be serious about being part of the climate emergency in a positive way, setting any kind of target after 2030, the climate science says is something to do, but it's not actually going to help. That was, goes back to the COVID-19 and we were put under pressure to change things very quickly. We had a vaccine that was approved in months. We had a furlough scheme rolled out in a matter of weeks. You know, we can do these things much quicker, even if it is a complexity involved. But, um, and it doesn't need to cost, you know, there's figures from the government that show that between 1990 and 2019, the UK's economy grew by 78%, while carbon emissions fell by 44%. So there's this kind of view that, things will fall off a cliff if we make this switch and it doesn't have to be, but there's a lot of complexity, um, as you say, Sean, around making that happen. I would challenge, let me stick up for the insurance companies here for a bit. I would rather work for a company that has a target and goal set, even though climate science claims that it's not relevant. And like the point, very valid and I, and I take it, but I'd rather have someone that has a target and then says we have a goal and then an opportunity to accelerate that target once they get going. 
But is it not better to have something rather than nothing? Or would you rather say, if you haven't got anything by 2030, don't bother at all? Well, I didn't say that, did I? I just said, you have to bother. And actually, if you're operating as a financial institution of any size, you're going to have to because the regulatory frameworks are, are coming together now. And actually, if you're part of the supply chain, so if you're a broker working with Aviva, you are going to have to take steps such that you have a net zero plan because you're part of their supply chain, you're part of their emissions. So, so you know, that's and that's what Aviva are doing, right? They're already talking to their partners about that and, and hopefully supporting them to do that, right? It's getting real though, isn't it? And it's getting it's saying it goes back to the greenwashing point. In a sense, I'm not saying that everyone that's putting 2050 as a target is actively greenwashing, but they are not following climate science. And, and if you don't follow the climate science, but you sign up to the Net Zero Insurance Alliance and you sign up to science-based target initiative and all these other you know things that our insurance businesses are signing up really nicely to all of this stuff. But if you're signing up to it and you've still got a target that says 2050, you know that that is not meeting the the milestone that, that you have to meet. So so what do we do about it? You know, I, I get it and I buy it. I, I'm just pleased that we've got more people on board now and the buses leaving the station might be slower than, than is needed, back to the science. But maybe we find ways to accelerate once that once we've started, because at least it says they've, they've recognised that it's an issue and then we push the pressure to go, we, the royal we, put the pressure on to go, now we need to move faster. At least there's no convincing that it has to be done because they've agreed that it has to be done because we have these things around suppliers to sustainability and so much more. And having answered a gazillion RFPs over the last couple of years, su supplier sustainability, diversity and so much more is always now a factor that comes into, into play when when people look to do to do business with you. And, and do you think, Nigel, just picking up on that and using the same analogy as, as, as the bus has left, do you think all the buses have left? Do you think we are beyond greenwashing now and we've got a lot better at identifying those that are left behind? And to your, to your analogy, we're all on the bus. It's just about how do we move the bus faster? Well, Sean talked about it early on, actually, and I always, I always break this down into two categories. Category one is what are we actually doing to address and engage in the challenge? number one, which are the initiatives that we bring to our organization, to our employees, to our supply chain. Uh, that's almost the secondary issue. The first issue is, where the hell are we? How do we measure it? What's the reporting doing? And back, that's back to the points made around standards, what we're after, and so much more. And I think there's a whole load of organizations now bringing together indices and so much more to understand where we are and how we get to the right points going forward. So, you know, you, what gets what what gets measured gets done, and for many of these organisations, they've got no idea even how to start measuring. And I think we've seen loads of companies now coming to market with ways and means of understanding your impact on environment or others um, through tools, technology, and data. And, and if I get Sean started on the data behind this, it's going to be a long conversation. If I could just come in on that, um, so we've just recently been b corp certified and for us that was a really helpful process in measuring where we're at and where we can make improvements and because b corp is so stringent it just gives you these markers of where you of what you need to hit but also you need to continuously uphold those standards it's becoming quite popular in the uk now it's big in the us um, but we have recently looked at another directory if you will that is giving a whole training package on how to audit all points of your the E and ESG and how you can measure from suppliers to your employees. So I think it's difficult for businesses to know where to start and maybe there needs to be a bit more guidance in just directing people to the right sort of organisations that can start that process because it can seem a bit um, insurmountable but clarity is the anecdote of um, greenwashing really. And, and Alice, did you find, you know, submitting application for the B Corp, did, did you find that helped you on that journey? Oh, well, I can't take credit for it. That was my colleague, Chris, and he um, assures me that it was a very lengthy process. I think it took a couple of years. We were B Corp pending for a while because you needed to trade for a little while. But it definitely helped because I think it got us, well, got us thinking as a company where we needed to make improvements, what 
things we need to look at. For instance, the building that we're in, um, it's, it uses recycled water, green energy and things like that. But obviously just looking into the fairness across, across the board. And because the standards are so high, uh, you have to maintain them. There's, there's, it's a kind of a reassurance. We're not going to sit back on our laurels because there's always work to be done in maintaining those standards. I guess, I guess on that one, do, do and I, I'm a big fan of the B Corps. We've got others like Bequest and a few others now coming through. I, I suspect over time it'll become the norm and folks like us will choose to do business or not, whether or not you are a B Corp or not. It feels like it's the, it's the right thing to do in the same way that, some of us might have bought Tom's shoes because, you know, you buy one pair and one pair get donated. It feels like the right thing to do again. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think what Sean said earlier about people getting left behind, I think, well, I would hope that in the future we will see so many more companies on B Corp to the point where, as you say, Nigel, that just becomes a standard. And from that base minimum standard, we have people that will always want to go one step further. Those people that are really putting the renewable fuel on the bus, shall we say, not the uh, the diesel turbo injectors on that bus that hopefully will bring that target much closer um, of net zero emissions by 2050. But yeah, it's, it's about achieving this base level standard because once more people are on that, it'll highlight those companies that are just not doing enough and not, you know, picking up their shoes and that's a random. That's a random phrase. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> picking up their shoes. Okay. Picking their feet up. Picking their feet up. Yeah. <laughs> I I know it was the Boston Marathon that weekend. Maybe that's where it came from. I, I'm not I sure. D- I doubt Sh- it, Nigel. I'm not a follower of that. But okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for for anyway for giving me a get out card on that. Darn one. it. I am. Um, you could have just lied to us all and said you were doing, you've done the Boston Marathon in three and a half hours. We'd never have known. Uh, yeah, sure. She works for a big <laughs> corp, Nigel. She doesn't tell lies, that's, right? That's, that's very the whole true. Point. Well, I can't tell lies. On that point, Shah, one for you. So does joining and certifying as a B Corp or setting these other objectives, do you think that creates a full sense of change and improvement that once you're, I guess it's the old phrase, isn't it? Persistence gets you there. Consistency keeps you there. How do we help companies get there first and foremost? I think B Corp is a great way to get there. How do we remain consistent? And then the continuous improvement to bring this 2050 date through to 2030 as quickly as possible. So we've talked a lot about the E, haven't we? We've talked a lot about climate and net zero. I just want to put put in a, a bid here for supply chain because that's where a lot of the reputational damage that insurance makes a lot of money but occasionally has to pay large claims out on reputation insurance. That's There's a lot of activity going on there as well. And the governance issues are going to happen. That's where the data privacy, informed consent, consumer duty type stuff in in the UK is is going to feed through eventually as well. So I think it clearly isn't enough, is it, to sign up to a scheme, however rigorous that scheme is in the first place. But the rigor applied at B Corp, as Alice has pointed out through their experience as Arma Karma, tells you what you need to do for the B Corp certification. I think that standards piece around what does net zero actually mean? What does scope one, two, and three actually mean? That is coming. That is being codified in, in the EU, the UK, and also sh- shock horror in the US. I mean, who thought that the SEC would come out with those kind of proposed rule changes on climate? You know, from being a laggard, the US has suddenly, through that SEC proposed rules, suddenly gone ahead of where even the UK and, and EU is at, in some ways on, on, on climate, right? So... So that you need to know what you're signing up to. That comes back to our points of what should we be measuring? How should we be measuring it? Where are the trusted sources? Some of that is down to the firm. Some of it has to come from regulation and other other uh, tools um, that non, non-governmental and, and other regulators and other stakeholders are rapidly putting into place. That is happening on climate. It's also going to happen on social factors as well. Um, the EU stuff is happening on, on the social taxonomy as well. So know the rules, get support in how you understand that and implement it. And this is where I think two things, bringing it back to insurance again, specifically insurers who have signed up to net zero will have to make that happen in their supply chain. That supply chain, it's not a derogatory term. It includes everyone that works with them from the loss adjusters 
to the broker partners, to everybody in that in that web of, of activity with the insurer. So what I'd like to see, Nigel, is I'd like to see a lot less spent on broker corporate entertainment, for example, and that's been directed to actually actively supporting your broker and other partners to really understand what is being required and tooling them up with education so that they can then make informed decisions about their business, right? Because again, what you choose to measure and whether you stick to it can't be wholly enforced from outside because then all you get is compliance. That's not that's not changing the way you work. That's just ticking boxes, right? So what you do as a firm you know, is going to directly dictate some areas of where you put the most emphasis on the E, the S and the G. I think there are common things there. I think the workplace experience and, and workplace culture that that should apply wherever. Right. But I think the education piece that you you touched on is really important because, uh, again, I have an issue, as you know, on education and insurance broadly, but education and insurance on this topic is if you link it back to things like supply chain and we go back to auto and we say, are we are we looking to replace the parts of the vehicle post post damage with green parts or not? Uh, would we use secondhand parts and all those sorts of good things? They are slowly coming through, but it is slowly and it will take a long time for that to impact. I wish you wouldn't say a long time all the time, Nigel. <laughs> I think we should take a leaf out of Alice's book. And I think we should say when we really want to, we can do it stupefyingly fast. I think I think on that, let's let's pause on that night. I think that's a, a great place to end for the midterm break. Stupefyingly fast. Um, now we're going to just take a quick break and we will be back very shortly, even stupefyingly fast. Fintech Insider presents After Dark Ripping Up the Rulebook. A special recording of Fintech Insider live from New York City, and we want you to join us. On Tuesday, May 24th, we'll be looking at DeFi, punk rock, embedded finance and hip-hop, and breaking down how they've all disrupted their industries. Head to 11fs.com forward slash afterdark for all the info and to get your free ticket. That's at 11fs.com forward slash afterdark. See you in New York. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So looking to the opportunities and the future. So now it's time to sum up our conversation and look to the future. So do we think the above challenges are just teething problems or long-term issues which might never completely disappear? And how can we get beyond these blockers? It's never going to go away is my, is my opener for 10. It's never going to go away. It's never going to be done. And we'll always have, we'll always be on this journey, no matter what is my starter. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think teething problems sounds quite small. So I feel like those will come later down the line. But um, I don't think these issues that we've um, outlined are insurmountable. But I think there will be others in the future. Um, but because they're so extensive, it's just it's quite daunting to make a start. And there are a lot of blockers. Saying the job will never be done is like saying I'm going to redecorate my house once and never have to do it again. It doesn't mean anything. It's true, but it, it's not true, actually, is it? Unless you, you just decide you're not going to decorate your house again. So to say that there will always be issues that will pop up, new risks, new opportunities, new ways of measuring, stuff that we, we can't predict, good and bad at the moment, fine, yes, absolutely, that's true. But to, but, but to somehow say, well, you know, to, to equate that with, well, it's a journey that will never be finished. I think that's a, a real prophecy of doom. And it's not the way you project manage. We don't project manage that way. We set milestones. We achieve the milestones and we move on. And that's the way this needs to be looked at with a degree of urgency, not just on the net zero stuff, but also on social and also on governance, because the detriment is here and now, and it's going to get worse across all three of those categories. So there you go, John. That's my that's my tuppenny worth. And I think you're absolutely right. I, th I think it's almost the um, you deliver it, you own it, and and you have to own it. And the continuation of that, in terms of the continuous improvements, like any project, it's not to your point. It's not once and done, um, but it's assessing the new challenges and the new risks uh, and addressing those as well. On to that next question. When we talked about the biggest blocker, so. What do you think is, if, if there is one blocker, what would you what do you think it is and what would you like to be see tackled first? I mean, Sean, you've mentioned a lot about in terms of standards and, and regulation. 
do you think, I'll start with you, what, what do you think is the biggest blocker? So I think that's all true. It's all true. All that stuff around the standards and, and guidance and education. And I, and I do think the, the education is absolutely vital here. So I would say for insurance specifically, as we've discussed, by its very nature, insurance has clients that are squarely in the transition economy bucket, black and brown industries right the way through. And to my mind, no firm has no problems with ESG, no issues to to overcome, right? But there are some that have much bigger problems, much more existential problems than others. So that's really tricky. The biggest blocker for us as insurance is just because we insure everyone and everything as far as we possibly can. Brackets the protection gap, but let's not go there. Perhaps that's for another, um, if I get invited back, Nigel, for a fourth go. Always invited back. It's permanently invited. I think um, our value chain is so exploded as well, right? So it's not just one firm. It's it's Every insurer has a, a whole network and plethora of partners. Every MGA has a plethora of partners. So every time we try and make a decision where it's not just us, it's our network, what we need to do our business. So we have the nature of our sector makes it really tricky for us. It, it therefore, to my mind, makes it even more important that we solve these problems or we can try to solve these problems at a faster pace than others, but also collaborating with clients, John. And I think this is where I'd like to sort of bring in a slight sort of mindset issue. I think insurers and insurance firms kind of in their DNA feel like they need to have all the answers to everything at any one point because it's kind of their job, right? There's that real sense that we need to, we're the experts at at this stuff. We should have all the answers. And I think it's been really disorientating for our sector to realize that actually we don't have all the answers. In fact, we, we're still working out some of the questions. And it's not that we're lagging behind everybody else, generally, in that sense of knowing what we need to address and what the questions are. I think it's because we have this relationship where clients are coming to us. Consumers are coming to us and saying, where are the risk transfer solutions? What data do you need from me to, to price my risks through an ESG framework? What do I tell my board about your strategy for underwriting? If I'm in I don't know, let's say tobacco. If I'm in tobacco, are you going to stop insuring me in two years' time when you've worked out what your policy is, right? So I think that's one of the biggest blockers is is comes from who we are and what we do. And that is tricky. Do you think this will become just table stakes as in insurers have to help these organisations make that transition and that will just become part and parcel of what the role of an insurer is or are insurers moving into potentially a new a new profit pool or a new way of working or a new opportunity space uh, as kind of more of a, an advisory. Um, it, it could be one of both. Or is this just going to be table stakes? If you, if you want to play this game, this insurance game, with an ESG lens on, you have to help do that transition. Okay. The order I would put it in, John, is if you're a financial institution, you have to have an ESG approach to managing your business and reporting on it. So that is table stakes of running a, a firm. I think then... There are always opportunities. Insurance is brilliant at this. Where there are new risks, there's always an opportunity for insurance to insure and make money from it. That's what we do. So, yes, to your question, is it kind of it's sort of business as usual? It's going to have to be across the, across the piece, I think, although different pieces will, will take priority. So net zero obviously is a priority at the moment along with diversity, equity and inclusion, actually, in in our sector, because we know we've got a problem, right? Yeah, table stakes, but also, don't forget, we've been talking forever about part of of the insurance offer is the risk engineering piece, that not just putting it right when it's happened, but helping you to make sure the worst doesn't happen to you in the first place, right? So massive opportunities there, huge, because these are big, big problems that are that are here and now, but but more risks will will come to the fore, right? So let me give you just one example. Climate activism and shareholder activism is kind of going hand in hand at the moment. It's the way that shareholders are holding firms to account if they don't feel that they've got a climate-ready approach. So Volante, a couple of weeks ago, have produced an MGA, an international MGA have produced a new policy that will ensure you as a firm against shareholder activism. 
we're good at that, right? So I, I don't mean to make it sound simple, but it's absolutely doable. And to quote Alice again, you know, when we put our minds to it, we can get this stuff done. Sean, you mentioned that the insurers, they, they feel like they have to know all the answers, but if actually they work together and there wasn't any kind of holding your cards close to the chest, this is a big, this is that bigger cause that I was talking about. This is what everybody needs to get behind. And we are Makama. We have already made contacts with other like-minded insurance companies who want to see this kind of change so that we can kind of create this ecosystem of like-minded insurance companies. And um, if they, you know, if you think that the more established insurers who are hitting the headlines for withdrawing from fossil fuels did the same, what what can we achieve collectively as an industry? Do you think, Alice, that we need to do that off our own back, or do we require a little bit of support, i.e., regulation, to actually drive everyone to the to the to the start line? I would hope that we would do it off our own back. And, you know, when we talked right at the beginning about ESG and the constant conversation about it and we're getting bored of it, we can't talk about it enough. We need to keep talking about it. It's, it's too important not um, for, for our future. But I think there will be companies that probably need a bit of a push over the line. And that's probably where regulation comes in. I mean, look at GDPR. GDPR, it's, we knew that data was important. We, we knew that we shouldn't be manhandling it. But the process of getting that all changed was such a headache. I worked in marketing at the time. It was supporting all these insurance brokers. It was a nightmare. It doesn't mean that we didn't think it was a good thing, but I'm saying if it, if we hadn't been pushed towards that, we might have just left it. So I think this might be the same thing, but we need guidance. And if, if the policymakers need to look at how that information is delivered, not everybody absorbs information pages and pages of complicated language and it's it's a real mistake to assume that everyone does like get that information because it can be so complicated it almost reminds me of workplace pensions because we don't yeah. want to have a workplace pension at any point even though we're looking at our future which is this is doing the same thing until we were told we had to have them and then everyone's got one all of a sudden so it's kind of a um it feels like that might be the necessary step that we need or something similar to get people at that start line or moving. I mean, John started this question off about blockers a couple of minutes back, and and for me, a blocker before was awareness. I don't think we're. I don't think we're. I don't think there's any companies now left or people or individuals that need convincing that this is the right thing to do and it exists as a climate crisis. So the education piece or the awareness piece, again, needs to continue. But we've got over that hurdle. Now the next one is what are we actually going to do? To create that sense of urgency, which for me is the biggest blocker, as you know, to, to Sean's point earlier, 2050 is tough. Science says 2030 is the right answer. So how do we get to that, and how do we create a sense of urgency to 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 make that a reality for every organisation, not just a few that have said they'll do it? Maybe the way is is the carrot rather than the stick, and I, I don't know what the exact answer is, but. If, you know, typically, you know, re regulation is the push, but what is the pull for these organizations? Because I think the only way to accelerate this is to make it, a, to make it attractive, make, make, I guess, some kind of incentive. It would be really interesting, wouldn't it, to get Amanda or somebody from Aviva to tell us what their pull was for, they, 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 to my mind, are not only being the most open, of the insurers on their website they they've got their their target set out primarily on the e granted and there is the s and the g still to come and those targets are you know they are within they're being they're saying they're being guided by the climate science as well so what was what was the reason that they did that what was the pull that that getting it in their own words i think would be really interesting john because we can speculate but but having that you know, unvarnished through a PR lens as well, which is unlikely just because quoted businesses have to be so careful about what they say, as we know, in the, in the public domain. But I think, you know, Arma Karma are a great example. In fact, one of the best examples there is of people who set up a business, and Alice is on the inside, so she can tell this story, but you've set up a business, right, Alice, that's predicated on being ESG from the beginning, 
is part of your growth plan. You're going to get more business doing it that way, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the core idea. Yeah, exactly. And um, so our key goals are raising, uh, one of them is raising a million pounds for our charity partners within the next three years and also creating a product that is fair, low cost and relevant. So both of those actually play into the success of our business. But I think in that changing mindset, and I think, Nigel, you brought this up, we need to redefine what success looks like. Success is no longer about just the monetary value of the business. It's about how you're contributing to your society and how you fit with that vision of a better society. And in doing that, you know, obviously we care, our customers care, you know, they, they just want a product that's relevant, but the kind of ECG element is a bit of an afterthought, but it's still very much appreciated by them. And I think with the likes of Aviva, and as you said, Sean, we can speculate, but I, to me, that just makes good business sense to put a kind of cynical slant on it because you're future proofing the business and you're not you're going to be left behind. Yeah, the one last thing I'll say, I know John's going to wrap up. But the one last thing I'd say is not just customers, but back to our point we made earlier, we're not going to go work for people where their values are misaligned. And I think this matters to attract and retain the right talent going forward, which is already hard enough and getting harder that if you don't have that alignment at the outset where those values are not matched, you just don't get people to work for you or you're not going to get the right people to work for you. So I think we have created this movement. I think insurance is an amazing opportunity. I think we've made a good start. I think it's going to intensify massively over the years to come, but it is slower than we need it to be. I agree. And, and, and I, think in, I think insurers have the ability to create a pull to your point, Sean, across the value chain, I actually think insurers can create that pull for different for, for, for brokers, for supply managers. There's lots of things that they can do. But yeah, I would be really interesting to you know speak to Amanda and work out what was what was Aviva's pull. But that's all we've got time for today. That wraps up today's discussion. So I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone for joining me. As always, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Sean, I'll start with you. So people can find out about me personally um, on LinkedIn. They can also find out about my micro business, Bright Blue Hair, and they can also find out about my not micro business um, as a co-founder, Green Kite Associates on LinkedIn, but also on the website. Brilliant. And Alice? Uh, yeah, again, like Sean, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can check out Armakarma at armakarma.insure. And you can find us on all social media platforms. Um, our handle is at Armakama UK, and that includes TikTok. Fantastic. And Nigel? You cannot find me on TikTok. <laughs> I give you that. That's we a leave shame. that to Robin. And I know I can't sing or dance just to save you all. Uh, now, you can find me on LinkedIn at Nigel Walsh or on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And finally, you can find me, uh, John Bean, on LinkedIn, or you can find me through 11FS. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Or find us on Twitter at InsTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.